I'm turning this evening to the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 1 and verse 20. Second Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him are men, unto the glory of God by us. And our subject is God keeps his promises. All the promises of God, says the text, all the promises, as many as there are, says the original Greek. And our translation is perfect, but the original says, all the promises of God, as many as there are, or as many as there may be, in him, in Christ, because he's in the previous verse, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you? Well, for all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him are men, unto the glory of God by us. Promises. Promises of God. What a mysterious idea. Before we go into this, there is in this verse a very interesting Double confirmation. It's just a little hidden in the English rendering. All the promises of God in him, in Christ, are yes. And also a second affirmation. And in him are men unto the glory of God by us. The, The amen refers to us. The promises of God in Christ receive a yea, and the promises of God in us receive an amen. And the meaning of the verse is just this. God has made many promises. They may be carried out because of Christ. He's made it possible. He's done the work. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit makes promises to the human race. Christ, second person of the Godhead, comes into this world to procure them, to fulfill them, to make it possible for those promises to be received by us. So in Christ, the promises receive confirmation and affirmation. In Christ, there yes, there is a yes to all the promises They are being kept, and they will be kept, and that's inevitable. And then the second affirmation is ours. If I'm converted to Christ, and I find him, and I discover the Christian life, and I'm given a new life by God, and he works in my heart and in my soul, and all things are made new, and I'm a different person, and I now love him and live for him, and pray to him, and receive answers to my prayers, and I have an inner certainty and assurance that these things are so, then I'm in a position to say, Amen to the promises of God. They are kept. I can affirm that they are kept. So that's the double affirmation in the verse. 
for all the promises of God, or the promises of God as many as there are, in Christ are yea, and in him are men unto the glory of God by us. That's our part. But the subject is that God makes promises. Why should God make promises? And the more you think about it, the more curious it is that Almighty God should be making promises. What is a promise, anyway? Well, by promise we mean an announcement or an undertaking to do something good. The very word promise comes from the idea of an announcement of good. Strictly speaking, promises don't apply to bad things. Strictly speaking, although the way we use language is very free and loose, and we promise bad things as well as good things, but we shouldn't strictly. The meaning of the word, you promise good things and you warn or threaten bad things. But as used in the Bible, God's promises are promises of good things, either to give good things or to protect and shield against bad things. Either way, the promises are about good things. Well, we have lots of promises these days. Political promises. Politicians are constantly making promises. And maybe, maybe they intend to keep them. Maybe they intend to carry them through. But they underestimate the difficulties or they've exaggerated what they feel they can do one way or another, or circumstances change and they can't possibly do the things they hope to do. Let's give as much uh, benefit of the doubt as possible. But this is human weakness. The promises are not kept. That's nothing like God's promises. God's promises are always kept. When he makes a promise... That promise has all the integrity of God behind it. He is truth. He will be true to his word and keep his promise. He is never in a position of being unable to keep his promise because he has absolute power. He has the integrity. He has the power. He is also good. The goodness of God, it is infinite, it's beyond our comprehension, and his goodness will not allow him to betray a promise. Why you hear tragic things these days, well, always has been. You hear of people who've promised another person, young person, that they'll live with them and make a home with them and love them and watch over them marry them, but they made the promise lightly or dishonestly and somebody ended up heartbroken. God is far too good for that. When he makes promises, he keeps them and has the power to do so and must do so because his nature is truth. So we can't compare it with the politician's promises 
or with the promises that are constantly broken in employment. You were given to understand that certain opportunities would be open to you, that certain things would be done for you, that you'd be in line for consideration for this or for that. But the promises were not kept. They were forgotten. They were disregarded. And everybody encounters this kind of thing constantly. Human promises are very often worthless. Same in trade. People undertake to provide something and they don't keep the terms. And it's constantly going on. But the promises of God are perfect. It doesn't answer the question, why does God make promises? After all, he doesn't owe anybody anything. He is God. He doesn't need our vote. He has supreme power. He is God. Why is he making promises? He has nothing to gain from us. If God disposed of the entire human race and destroyed the world because of our rebellion against him and our sin and our indifference to him, what difference would it make to God? He wouldn't be unhappy without us. He is God. He is supremely and perfectly happy with or without us. He doesn't need us. He needs no fuel. He needs no food. He needs no emotional support. He is glorious and he's loving and he's wonderful. But he's God, he's all in all, an infinite and eternal. He is completely self-existent by his own everlasting power and wealth and goodness. He needs nothing. So why is he making promises to us? I will do this for you. I will do that for you. If you will only do this and that. Why does God make promises? He's actually entitled to our obedience, our unquestioned obedience. He made us. He designs us. He sustains us. If God withdraws his mysterious and mighty power, everything in the world collapses. It's ended. He is the sustainer by his infinite energy of all things. And we've offended him. He's written into our constitution laws of behavior, into our very being, and we offend him and disobey them, and we sin left, right, and center. Why should he be making the Holy One promises to us, the unholy ones and the rebels, the people who maybe are not interested in him, despise him, slander him, and yet he makes promises? It's an amazing and a wonderful thing. So the question is, why does God stoop? Stoop so far down as to make promises to us by way of wooing us or inviting us or pleading with us 
to turn to him? And there's only one answer. His amazing love and his pity for us and his compassion for what we've done to ourselves and to our eternal hope. And the love of God is extending that mighty arm to reach us and to stoop to us. He saw the nations lie all perishing in sin and pitied the lost state this ruined world was in. That's the mercy and the compassion of God. You don't see this in our world. People extending mercy and compassion to their enemies and the people who hate them. It's only God who has such love. What are the promises of God? Well, they've been called, and it's a beautiful expression, overtures to the soul. God's overtures to the soul. The Bible is a book of information and promises. It has those two elements running through it. Information about God, about us, about our need, about how God will save us and help us. Information about God and promises. The promises of God, if you will turn, if you will bow the knee, if you will ask and come. Promises of forgiveness. That's our first need. God has promised to forgive if we turn to him, trusting in Christ the Savior. I'll come to that. Promises of reconciliation, that we shall find him, discover him, know him, and have him in a real and living way. Promises of renewal, our lives will be changed and we will be magnificently changed and strengthened and virtues will begin to be built in us that we never had before and God will enable it and help us. Promises of power over sin. Promises that we shall be able to call upon him and pray and he will hear and answer. Promises of peace and joy and certainty. There are so many promises and all the promises, says the Apostle Paul, as many as there are, are fulfilled through the work of Jesus Christ. And that brings me to this issue. Every promise has a price. Every promise that's ever made in the history of the world has a price. Promises cost. And the bigger the promise, the bigger the cost. In the 19th century and the very early 20th century, when all university education, with few exceptions, was private and you had to pay and it was expensive, well, there are wonderful stories in biography 
of families who would take their um, academic member, maybe it was a lad, sometimes a girl, not so often, sadly, in those days, but there'd be a young boy, a young man in the family, did extremely well in his studies, and the family was not rich, perhaps quite poor, and they would say, we will send you to a better school. We will send you to university. This will be our family mission. You will be our scholar. I can think of two very famous scientists, James Clark Maxwell and Lord Kelvin, for example, to whom <clears throat> this very thing happened. And their families said, you will be our scholar. And they scrimped and saved and sacrificed and they sent those lads to the university. In due course, they became very uh, famous and advanced in their fields, and laid foundations and so on. It cost. The bigger the promise, the bigger the cost. That's always the case, always so. Same with God. Same with God. If God promises, he's got infinite wealth, infinite power. God can make promises and it doesn't surely cost God anything to keep them. Ah, but that's where we'd be wrong. It costs even God to keep his promises to man. And the problem is <clears throat> the holiness of God. He is perfect and holy and wonderful through and through. And it is throughout his nature, which we can't really consider because he's infinite, but it's throughout his being that he is indignant against sin. The holy nature of God repels sin. So if God says, Come to me, I will forgive your sin. How can it be done? That promise will cost. How can a holy God forgive sin? Why, if there's a tremendous light, the sun comes up. And it's a bright dawn and morning. And all darkness and all shadows, well, they run for their lives. They cannot intermingle with the light. The light drives them away. And it's so with God. The holiness of God cannot abide sin and filth and all the problems of the human race that are associated with that. Same with a loud noise. A loud noise and peace and silence is overwhelmed and it disappears. Same with Almighty God. A blazing fire, we're not allowed these days in the city, blazing log fires or coal or coke fires under the Clean Air Act, but you know the illustration, a great blazing fire and the cold is driven out for want of, if I may use non-scientific language. Supposing it's in the open, 
It's one of those old-fashioned braziers that used to be by works in the road for the night workers. Or it's a fireworks night bonfire or something of this sort. If there's ice about, well, it's vanquished, it's gone. The holiness of God repels and punishes by destruction all sin. It's going to be of immense cost to God to keep these wonderful promises. I will forgive you. I will rebuild you. I will come to you and be your close companion and your heavenly friend and bless you through life and take you to eternal glory. How is he going to do it? God must provide a substitute to take the punishment of our sin. Our sin must be cancelled out by punishment. God must provide a sin bearer. God must provide a scapegoat to take my suffering. All the promises of God may be fulfilled and are kept through Christ. He came from heaven and entered into human flesh and became our representative and went to Calvary's cross to be our sin bearer and our scapegoat and to suffer on our behalf. The cost to God was so great to secure, to procure our forgiveness. That's how God keeps promises through Christ and what he has done. What a price to pay. We cannot earn the blessing of God. We cannot make up for all our past sin. We cannot change ourselves now to be acceptable to him. We need Christ to die for our sins and to offer up to God his perfect righteousness on our behalf to cover us, to secure heaven for all of us. He must pay the debt. He must pay our righteousness on our behalf. The promises of God. Let's turn to just a few promises as we come to conclusion. Let me turn to Matthew's Gospel just to give some examples. And I go to chapter 11 of Matthew's Gospel and verse 28. Here's one of the great promises of God. It's Christ saying, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. Will you know this is not about your working life? This is not about physical toil. This is about people who are labor and are heavy laden by the burden of sin and need. We come in different ways to the Lord. Some people, well, they are very cast down and they wonder what the meaning of life is and its purpose. And there is no purpose in life 
the life they're living in this world, if only they could reach out to God and find him, if only they could have a hope of heaven, if only they could know him and receive blessing. Well, they're heavy laden. This is a spiritual matter. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And then we feel our sinfulness, our need of forgiveness. And we say, can I be forgiven? Would God have me? What must I do to be saved? What can I do? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and you're thirsting and you're longing, and I will give you rest, peace. You'll know your sins are forgiven. I will forgive you. I will remake you. I will visit you. Take my yoke upon you, my service. Well, because it's wonderful, the Christian life. It's easy. It's light. We have the help and blessing of Christ. We make so many discoveries. We experience him. And then I'd like to go on very quickly to the Gospel of John and the famous, so famous words in John chapter 3 and verse 16, the whole passage. You know them. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world, people in the world, throughout the world, might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God so loved the world, the love of pity and compassion. And with that love, he loved what otherwise he would have hated. The world's disobedience and rebellion and sin and consequential suffering. Whosoever, whoever you are and whatever you've done, if you come and you repent, you can be forgiven. That's the promise of God. No death for you. At the end of life, you go straight into the presence of Almighty God. I turn to John chapter 4 and verse 14. What a promise this is. It's Christ saying to the woman at the well, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. That's amazing and wonderful. You will never feel there's no purpose in life. You will never hunger and thirst having seen through the triviality of this world and the shallowness of material life because you'll have the Lord and his blessing 
and his new life and you'll walk with him and know him and he will never fail you. And just to close, a glance at John chapter 6. I should have left more time for these. But verse 35. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Yes, when you grow old, you've come to Christ, you've repented of your sin, you've found him, your life has been changed. When you come to a great age and you're infirm and perhaps very sick, who knows? And you know you're at the end of life's journey. It's time to cross that threshold and to stand before God. Well, you will know no hunger in your heart, in your soul. You will not ask yourself, what will become of me? What will happen when I die? What happens after death? Where would I go? It won't happen to you. Because you'll know the judge of all the earth, the saviour of the world, the one to whom you go. And you'll go cross that line with great joy. And as you do so, the light of the next world will come into your soul and you'll find yourself in that eternal realm, safe and purified and saved for all eternity. Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He'll never give you up. He won't let you slip away. He won't let you fall away from the Christian life. He'll hold you to the end and take you through into eternity. And lastly, verse 37. Look at this. Do you hesitate to come to Christ? All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Well, you've come to him in that you long for him and you want his forgiveness and you desire to be changed and converted. You've come. But listen to what the Lord goes on to promise. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Suppose you were homeless and you lived on the streets and you had no address and you couldn't get any help and nobody cared about you and nobody cared for you and somebody, oh, this is just fancy, but somebody somewhere saw you and said, I will get you a home. No, not even just a room. Not a flat, but a house. And I will give it to you entirely. And I will get it tended and cared for. And you will live there. And supposing you didn't even reply. 
you didn't even acknowledge it. You didn't accept it. You didn't say anything. What gets into us, friends, with Almighty God? The promises of God, I will forgive you, I will save you, I will give you spiritual life, I will change your very nature, I will bless you and walk with you and be your God, you will serve me and I will take you to glory and we don't even acknowledge him. We flee the church as soon as we can. We put it out of our mind as though we never heard it. What's got into us? I'll tell you what's got into you. It's our sinful hearts that are against God. It's this world has programmed us and brainwashed us to reject him. And we poor dupes are just doing as we're told. Don't let it happen to you, dear friends. Not so very far from here, in Stepney, Dr. Tom Pernardo, in the 19th century, founded his home for boys, for orphaned and otherwise homeless, familyless boys. And he had a sign over the door which simply read words to this effect, no destitute boy ever refused. And he got that from this 37th verse. He was doing what the Lord does for our souls. And here it is. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Come to him, friends. Give him your life. Repent of your sin. Let's pray together. Oh God, our gracious Heavenly Father, look upon us all this night. Teach us thy great kindness and compassion. Show us in our hearts what Christ has done for us. Oh, Lord, we marvel that thou, the mighty God, should stoop to make promises 